want to invite you to join me in the Gospel of Luke, if you've got your Bible with you. Um, The text we're going to read will have the words up on the screen as well, but if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, I I hope you do. Uh, We're in Luke chapter 2. Here as we get going in Luke, we've been reminding ourselves that the major theme of the Gospel of Luke is the Kingdom of God, and we've come here to this Gospel to learn what the Kingdom of God is like. So far, and we're ending our time in chapter 2 today, but we've taken what I've simply called a Trinitarian approach to the first two chapters of Luke. So we came to the first two chapters just asking the question, okay, how is the Father involved in this kingdom? How is the Son involved? What's his unique role? And what about the Holy Spirit? What's the unique role of the Holy Spirit? That... And what we found is that, okay, the Father is the planner of this kingdom. And as for the Son, well, he's the one who took a body and became fully human and is the king. That's his unique role among the members of the Trinity. And as for the Holy Spirit, going all the way back to the beginning of our study, the Holy Spirit is the power in this kingdom. And so these things are foundational to understanding the kingdom of God. All this groundwork is laid in the first two chapters of the gospel of Luke. So we think kingdom of God. Okay, the father is the planner. The son is the king. The Holy Spirit is the power. And understanding all those things really sets the stage for what we'll find in chapter 3. And then as we continue to move on in the gospel of Luke. As the kingdom of God begins to be proclaimed to people. But before we get there, before we step into chapter 3, there's this one final passage in chapter 2 that begins in verse 41. It's the only passage in any of the Gospels that give us an account of something that happened in Jesus' boyhood. So not infancy. We have accounts of some things that happened in his infancy, but Luke tells us about something that happened when Jesus was 12, when he was a boy. It's the only account we have of something that happened in his boyhood. So that's our text for today, the only boyhood passage. All right. Now, here's the lens through which we're going to look at this passage. We're going to notice how what we see happen in this text establishes a pattern for what we will see happen again and again, over and over, as we go through the rest of the gospel. That's the lens that we're going to approach this text with. What we see happen here at the end of chapter 2 is going to happen again and again. And understanding this pattern will help us understand what it means to be in close relationship with Jesus. What's it going to mean for you and for me to be in close relationship with this person? Okay, that's what we're tracking down today. And this is a really helpful snapshot that Luke gives us right off the bat because it establishes the whole tenor of the gospel. Both the brilliance and the difficulty that we run up against whenever we encounter Jesus of Nazareth. All right, so let's read, starting in verse 41. We'll read through verse 52. 
And then I'll pray, and then we'll notice the pattern that's established here. Okay? Let's stand, shall we, in honor of God and his word. Luke 2.41. Now his parents, that's Jesus, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he went down with them and came to Nazareth, Excuse me. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see Jesus as he actually is. Not for who we want him to be, but for who he is. I pray you would open our eyes to that truth today. It Really, Father, open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you, to see you for who you really are, high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory in all its beauty and truth. So just help us a little bit more today, we ask, in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. And please be seated. Well, Jesus, uh, Jesus is missing. His parents don't know where he is. Verse 46 tells us where he is and what he's doing. And that's the first thing that we want to pay attention to is just to notice what he is doing. What is his activity? This is, remember, we're, we're seeing how a pattern is established. Here's point one. Here's the first part of the pattern, noticing his activity. According to verse 46, he's doing three things. There are three action verbs there in verse 46. He's sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them. And he's asking them questions. Sitting, listening, asking. And because we have verse 47, we know that he's not only asking questions, he's also giving answers. We see that at the end of verse 47, that there's people who are very impressed with his answers. So he's sitting, he's listening, he's asking, he's answering. What's his activity? What's he doing? He's having an exchange with the religious leaders of Israel over matters related to God. He's having an exchange with the religious leaders of Israel over matters related to God. To God. And we know that so much of his ministry is going to be exactly that. That's what he's going to be doing. We're going to see that over and over again. Listening to them, 
asking them questions, answering their questions. We're going to see all of those fascinating exchanges as we study Luke's gospel. So that's our first point. We're just noting that we find Jesus in what will be a very familiar position, doing what we often see him doing. Now, likewise, the second thing, verses 47 and 48, we see something else that will become very familiar. We notice the response by the people who are listening to him. This response that people give at the end of chapter 2 when Jesus is 12 is the identical response that people will make later when Jesus, as an adult, is, is an adult. And Luke describes the response with two different words. The first one is amazement on the part of all who heard him. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. There's amazement and there's astonishment. There's astonishment on the part of his parents, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And we we noted at the beginning that we're just recognizing how a pattern is being established here. When Jesus is 12, people are amazed and astonished when they encounter him. And that's going to be the predominant response of the people that encounter him later during his public ministry as an adult. He's going to amaze and astonish by his teaching and by his power to heal and by the the answers that he's able to give these religious authorities where they, they try to trap him and he gives these unbelievable answers. Like, how did you get out of that trap? People are going to be amazed and astonished. Luke's going to use those exact words in chapter 4, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, chapter 24. It's going to describe the response of the people in the exact same way. So we see this pattern developing. Okay, we see him doing this activity. It's going to become really familiar. We see the response of the people. It's going to be the same when he's an adult as he is when he's a child. They're amazed and they're astonished. And then the most important part of the pattern is what we find thirdly and finally. Because the the account's not over, is it? The third part is the conflict. That's what we see in verses 48 through 51. Let's talk about this conflict, okay? Because this is where the tension is in this passage. And this is where the tension is going to be for us also. This is where we'll draw our main point of practical application from by observing the conflict between Jesus and his parents. Because there's a reunion here at this point, isn't there? They're back together. I don't know why it didn't strike me before in reading this account, but Jesus has been on his own for at least three or four days. Like, he had to find, where was he sleeping? He had to find that on his own. Where was he getting food? Like, he's been on his own, at least apart from his parents. I don't know about you. I I like to watch Home Alone this time of year. (laughs) Couldn't help but think of little Kevin parallel situation, right? He's on his own. He's doing all this stuff. And then at the end, there's this great reunion and it's kind of huggy and kissy. And he and his mom, you know, it's Christmas Eve and they're back together and tears and all this stuff. That's just, that's not what happens here. It's not that kind of a reunion. 
between Jesus and his parents. At least that's not the account that we're given. That's not the emphasis of the account. Like the joy at coming back together. They're, they're dealing with some tension here. Well, what's the nature of the conflict? It's a conflict of, of wills. That's the nature of the conflict that we observe in verses 48 through 51. It's a conflict of wills. On the one hand, you have the human will, the very understandable human will of Joseph and Mary. What's their will? Well, their will is that Jesus follow the parent-child script that every other child follows. Like, we want you to be with us. Like, we're going home. Go where we go. Do what we want you to do. Be with us like your friends that are with their parents. Just be the child in this relationship, which is normal. We were searching for you. We didn't know where, where you are. They're acting like any of us would act. That's the, that's the human will side here. We understand that. That's us. We get that. But on the other hand, in conflict with the human will is the divine will of the Father. Represented by Jesus' words, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? That's the divine will represented in words. I must be here. According to who? Well, according to the Father. Literally, this reads in the original text, it is necessary for me to be in the things of my Father. This is a famously difficult phrase to translate. And the translations you have in front of you are probably all over the place because probably Jesus uses an idiom here that we don't completely get in English. He probably uses an Aramaic idiom. And the phrase he uses is literally, it is necessary for me to be in the things of my father. Like that's what the text says. And then we juggle it around in English and try to figure out how to translate that. And some have in my father's house. Okay, legitimate. Or about my father's business. And really they mean the same thing or pretty close to the same thing, which is, Didn't you know that it is necessary for me to be involved in the instruction of those things pertaining to my father? Which takes place in the temple, okay? And that's what it means to be uh, in the things of my father. Don't you know that it's necessary for me to be involved in the instruction of those things pertaining to the Father. So now look, at the end of the day, here's what's important for our purposes today. The Father, God the Father, God the Heavenly Father, has a will for Jesus. Just as Joseph and Mary have a will for Jesus. And in this case, those wills were in conflict with each other. Mary and Joseph wanted him here. God the Father wanted him there. It was necessary for Jesus to be there. That's a conflict, isn't it? 
The human will, represented by the parents, was in conflict with the divine will. Now, this is just an early example of that dynamic. Right at the beginning of the gospel, it's, it's really it's kind of just a family thing. It's a pretty private thing playing out in a domestic situation. But the larger point is that the pattern is established, and we'll see it repeated, that in the person of Jesus, Mary and Joseph have run into the divine will. It's different from their will. It's in conflict with their will. And it's going to happen to other people as well in this gospel as they encounter Jesus. When they encounter Jesus, they will find themselves up against the divine will, and it will create a kind of crisis in their life. And I think the best example of that is the rich young ruler that we meet at Luke 18. He's the one who met Jesus, and he wanted to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He runs up to him and asks that question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as they go through a little bit of conversation, finally the answer that's given to him is, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. Now, do you see the crisis On the one hand, he really wants to obtain eternal life. On the other hand, he really wants to keep his stuff. So what's he going to do? Jesus saying that to him created a crisis in his soul. An intense conflict arose between his human will to keep what he has... And the divine will that he love his neighbor as himself. So what's he going to do? Whose will is going to win? Well, we know what he does. Luke only tells us that he became very sad. Mark, the gospel writer Mark, tells us that he became sad and that he went away. That he bowed to his own human will and, and went his way with a sad countenance. He didn't follow Jesus. That's the conflict. That's the battle between the human will and the divine will that happens when a person encounters Jesus of Nazareth. And it still happens all the time. Whether you are presently a disciple of Jesus or whether you are not, same conflict. Yes, Jesus amazes us with his teaching. Yes, he astonishes us with his wisdom. But that's not all that happens when we encounter Jesus. He's not only someone to marvel at. He's someone that brings about an intense conflict of wills when we encounter him. Because he's headed toward the Father's will. That's where he's leading everyone that wants to follow him, toward the Father. That's his role. That's where he's going. That's who he is. He's leading me and you as his disciples squarely toward the will of the Father, and we don't want to go there. Not in our natural human will. That's why there's a conflict. 
encountering Jesus always brings a kind of crisis between the human will and the divine will, and we have to decide, well, am I going to follow or am I not? Our will for ourselves is pleasure. His will for us is holiness. You may encounter that conflict later today. You may have already encountered it today. Our will for ourselves is accumulating wealth. The will of the Father for us is generosity and trust in Him. That's a conflict. Whose will is going to be followed? Our will for ourselves is security. That's what we want. That's what we want to have and hold on to. The Father's will is faithfulness to speak and act and do the right thing. That's where Christ is leading us to. That's a conflict of wills. Whose will is going to be followed? Our will is power. His will is humility. Our will is revenge. His will is turn the other cheek. Our will is to hold a grudge against a person. And his will is that we forgive that person. We run into these conflicts all the time. Daily, hourly, minute by minute. Really, one, one thing that I has been the most helpful for me as I prepared uh, to give this sermon, I hope is maybe most helpful to you as you go, is just recognizing that in yourself when you get home and when you leave this room, to not be shocked when you encounter that conflict as a disciple of Jesus. That, that you just recognize in the moment, oh yeah, I, I've encountered Jesus, I'm his disciple. I'm experiencing a conflict right now. <laughs> I want to do this. Jesus... My teacher, my Lord, is leading me this way in this moment. What am I going to do? When we're trying to follow Jesus, we have those conflicts and crises all the time. Here's what Mary learned on this day at the temple with 12-year-old Jesus, and it's what we would do well to learn When we are in close relationship with Jesus, as she was, Mary the mother of Jesus, when we are in close relationship with Jesus, we encounter the divine will. To get close to him is to come close to the divine will, and there will be conflict. And so we will have these crises, both great and small, as we do life with this person. To know him is to know a a crisis of the will. And no one's exempt. Not even Mary. Not even his own mother is exempt from knowing a a crisis, a soul-piercing crisis as she gets close to this person, even her own son. I said last week that we would circle back and talk about verse 35 of chapter 2 because it's really mysterious. It's this prophecy by Simeon where he tells Mary, and your own, a, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. When Jesus was an infant, he said that to Mary, his mother. 
Luke 2.35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What does that mean? One of my instructors at Dallas Seminary, Daryl Bach, is one of the, the best living scholars on the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And so in his commentary on Luke, he lists 10 different interpretations of that statement. 10. What does Simeon mean by this prophecy? Well, here are 10 things that he might mean. (laughs) I'll just tell you where I land on this question. And you don't have to land here. I'm just telling you this is where I land on the meaning of that statement. I think that Luke presents this account, the one we're in today, this account of the boy Jesus. I think Luke presents this account as an example of at least a partial fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy about Mary's soul being pierced by this relationship with Jesus. She's Jesus' mother. But his will is completely beholden to another. Jesus shows himself here at the end of Luke 2 to be bound by the will of the heavenly father, not his parents' will. So that when those two wills collide, he chooses the father. So yes, he is Mary's son, but not only her son. He does not belong completely to her. He belongs completely to God the Father. And that will be hard for her. In various ways, many known only to her. And that's a reality that we all have to come to grips with, that Jesus is not a person that we can bend to our own human will. He's not malleable that we could make him into whatever we want him to be. He will lead us to places that are in conflict with our own natural human will, places we don't want to go and would never choose to go because he's not following us. He's leading us toward the will of God. And I think I have to say this in complete respect and humility to every listener and say it with appropriate fear and acknowledgement of my own great feeling, uh, failings. If you say that you are a follower of Jesus, but you don't feel any conflict between what you naturally want to do and where he is leading you, If there's never any sense of my will is in conflict with where he wants to lead me, if you never feel that conflict in that crisis, it is very likely not him who is leading you, but you attempting to lead him. You have begun to practice a kind of reverse discipleship where you would have Jesus become a learner and be led where you want him to go. When we know him and see him for who he really is, we understand that we're encountering the divine will and there will be a crisis many, 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 many times over 
in our lives. And it doesn't do us any good to be deceived. We have to learn what Mary learned that day. She learned that Simeon was right. To be in close relationship with this person is going to pierce my soul. Is going to create a crisis. Daily, hourly. Because in this person of Jesus, my human will runs up against the immovable, unchangeable divine will, which Jesus must lead toward. And the choice is mine. Am I going to follow him or am I not going to follow him? And that's really the main task of preaching is to take souls. All of us are in this together is to take souls and come to an encounter with Jesus and create a crisis where we have to choose. Am I going to follow him or am I not going to follow him? And that's the table that Luke has set before us for the rest of the gospel. This pattern is going to be played out again and again and again. And there's going to be a major, major crisis in chapter 4. All these elements are going to be present. Jesus is going to be doing the same activity. He's going to get the same response from the people. And then there's going to be an unbelievably intense conflict because it does not end at amazement and astonishment. It's going to be a pretty horrible conflict when they realize who this person is because a human will does not encounter the divine will without intense resistance. And only the Holy Spirit can overcome the human will and follow the will of God. It's all before us in the rest of the gospel. It's all before you today. Living life in close relationship with Jesus, you will know both great amazement and great conflict. And I pray that God keep you in his grace and God bless you with peace and that you pray at all times in the spirit to the Father, as the Son taught us to pray, that our Father who art in heaven, thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Father, I I pray for everyone listening, especially those who right now feel that intense crisis within themselves of knowing where Christ is leading but feeling that great, great pull in the natural human direction. It may be a crisis that's been going on for a long time and a decision needs to be made. And I, I pray, I ask on behalf of my brothers and sisters that the Holy Spirit would empower today in this hour only by the Holy Spirit a response of laying down, surrendering whatever it is and saying, I'm following Jesus today. We know we can only do it because he won the victory in the garden where he said, not my will, but thine be done. And he won that victory. And so now by the Holy Spirit, we can, we can choose him. Father, empower that response today, we pray in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.